Well, welcome, everybody. Thanks for taking the time to come see me talk a little bit about uh, DynamoDB. My name is Rick Houlihan. I'm a principal technical product manager on the database services team at AWS. Uh, I work uh, primarily with DynamoDB, but I'm very well versed in a variety of NoSQL technologies. And some of what we're talking about today is obviously going to apply not only to Dynamo, but to a variety of other technologies as well. Um, so just to kind of get started here, how many people are familiar with uh, NoSQL technologies in the room? All right, very good. Getting better every year. Uh, the, uh, and how many people have used DynamoDB? All right, all right. So, Nance, that's getting better, too. This is good. Uh, all right, so today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the history of data processing. I like to go through a couple of charts here, not very much time, but just to kind of level set, why do we even want to consider NoSQL technologies when we have this wonderful relational database we've been using for many years. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about DynamoDB, uh, uh, internals, the scaling characteristics, uh, these dreaded hotkeys, what are these things that we need to understand uh, that affect all NoSQL platforms, not just DynamoDB, uh, and some of the design considerations that are important to keep in mind when we're building applications uh, on NoSQL technologies. Uh, then we'll get into a little discussion of NoSQL data modeling. Uh, how do we look at relational data, data, uh, data in the context of a NoSQL database, uh, basically a normalized versus an unstructured uh, schema? And then we'll talk a little bit about some of the common NoSQL design patterns that I've run into with customers and how we solve some of their problems uh, around things like time series data, uh, write sharding. We'll talk a little bit about what that is, why that's important, uh, and uh, MVCC, which is a transactional design pattern for NoSQL. I hear a lot of people talk about we need to have transactions in NoSQL, so uh, I have a design pattern we'll talk about uh, that gets into that. And if we have enough time, we'll talk a little bit about how Amazon DynamoDB plays in this serverless ecosystem and this new serverless application framework that's becoming so popular at AWS. So first off, if you look at any technology, you could look at the evolution of that technology as a history of uh, innovations. And those innovations occur when we see some sort of a, uh, a pressure point in the market. In the case of data processing, that is data pressure. So it's the ability of the system to process the amount of data that we're being asked to process at a reasonable cost or in a reasonable time. And when we can't do either one of those things, we have a technology trigger, and that really forces innovation. So if we look at the history of data processing, the first database we had was the one between our ears. It was a very good database, uh, highly available, uh, you know, maybe questionable durability, uh, <laughs> not much in the way of fault tolerance, a uh, single user system. And so obviously we had to figure out something else. So we were rapidly gathering more information than we could possibly store between our ears. So we developed a system of ledger accounting uh, and, and basically wrote things down. This is a system that ran the world for many, many years. And it really is, if you look at the first database, Anytime you start uh, organizing data in a structured way and you start to uh, build hierarchies or aggregations of data, uh, this is really what databases do. So I look at ledgers as really kind of that early, early database. Uh, rapidly, we started to evolve our technologies as we got into around 1880. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. Census, a guy named Herman Hollerith came along, and he was tasked with processing all of the data uh, that was collected during the 1880 U.S. Census, and it took him eight years to do that. Uh, and he realized that in 1890, when we have to gather all that data, again, we're going to need something better, and that was one of the first technology triggers uh, in, the, in the era of modern data processing. He invented the machine-readable punch card and the punch card sorting system, which uh, was a big piece, one of the pillars of a, a small little company we know today as IBM, uh, has had a long and storied footprint on database technology. <coughs> 
So rapidly we evolved from there through a, a series of innovations. And what we discovered was the more we innovated, the more we, uh, the more technologies we brought to bear to process the data, the more data that we needed to process because the more applications we found uh, for processing of that data. So we went through data drums, we went through uh, paper tape, magnetic tape, and we found that the way that we accessed the data was really dependent on the way we stored it. Right? If I put data on tape, I had to read to the end of the tape to retrieve the file. Uh, <laughs> these are things that can, were slow again. Uh, and the, and the increased pressure uh, for more and more applications to process data led us to another innovation, which was the uh, distributed file system, uh, distributed block storage, random access file system, a distributed block store. Uh, this was really a turning point in data processing because up until today, or the invention of this technology, uh, the, everything we brought to bear made things cheaper. Right? When we started you know, storing data on disk, it actually made things more expensive. Right? Disks are, the disk technology was very expensive. So the next innovation was actually, and this is critical, was the invention of the relational database. And the relational database was really invented to denormalize, deduplicate, and reduce the footprint of data on disk. That was its primary mission. The secondary mission was to be able to provide an ad hoc query language so I could ask questions of the data and produce materialized views that my applications actually consumed. And the reason we did this was because disk was expensive and CPU was cheap. Right? So burning CPU by hopping around the disk and building materialized views wasn't something that was too much of a problem when I was saving the enormous cost that my enterprise IT staff was investing in racking storage in my data center. So fast forward 40 years, and what we found is we've kind of flipped the tables here. CPU is now the most expensive resource in the data center, and storage is cheap. So why would I use a database technology that's really optimized for the least expensive resource in the data center? So we now are looking at distributed data databases like NoSQL databases that store data in a way the application uses it and reduce the CPU burden on the database to produce these materialized views. So what does that look like uh, you know, from a data processing perspective? Uh, this is actually a trend that we've been seeing for 150 years. It's just becoming really noticeable now because we're at the tail end of the whip. 90% of the data we store today was generated in the last two years. This is a pretty common, uh, commonly accepted fact. Uh, and you know, you'll find Forrester, IBM Research, lots of people have verified this. Uh, and, and from a practical perspective, what that means is one terabyte of data in 2011 is now 6.5 petabytes of data today. And I see this every day in dealing with customers, right? I had customers, you know, five years ago talking to me about their terabyte databases and thinking we'll all be 10 or 20 terabytes, you know, in five years from now, and that's what they're planning for. These same customers come to me today and they talk about the petabytes of data that they have to deal with and the problems that they're dealing with trying to uh, manage all of this data. So everybody is seeing this data explosion. There's a linear correlation, as we've seen throughout history, between this type of data pressure and technical innovation. So we can expect something's going to come along, and that something today is NoSQL technology. And there's really no reason that that trend is not going to continue. So are we done with NoSQL? Is that the end? Probably not. There'll be something else. Uh, but today, this is what we have, so this is what we're going to talk about. So from a technology perspective, uh, what I really see in the market, this isn't really just in databases, right? This applies to every technology. Uh, you'll see these technology triggers because people are having problems doing something. In the case of uh, data processing, we talked about data pressure. Uh, when we see that trigger, we'll see people run to market with new solutions, new answers to solve these problems, to resolve that customer pain. And customers will obviously run to these technologies because somebody somewhere had a good experience. So they, you know, they solved that problem with that. That must be my solution. Inevitably, we see then people run to the solution. They fail. 
miserably, right? It doesn't work for them. I have an application that doesn't apply. You, I mean, you know how many times I've walked into customers and heard that statement. My app doesn't work with NoSQL. We have to have a relational database. The reality is you're trying to use the new tool like you used the old tool. And if you're trying to do this, you're going to have a lot of problems. NoSQL technology doesn't like to do things like joins between tables and whatnot. You want to store that data as a hierarchical structure. So if you try to do this at the application tier, you're going to have a miserable experience with NoSQL. So how do I know that I'm that guy that's in that trough of disillusionment? It's because you're running around looking for things to provide the features that you think are missing from the technology. I need transaction libraries. I need object mapping libraries. I need things that I was very familiar and comfortable with using in the relational world. Well, my answer to that is embrace the native APIs. Because even though those libraries may exist for you, they're there as security blankets. Right, oftentimes they create a lot of problems, especially at scale. So I'm going to talk to you about design patterns today that don't leverage any of these things, that use the native APIs in design patterns that are very specific to NoSQL. <clears throat> Why do I want to use NoSQL? Well, uh, again, we talked a little bit about how SQL is really optimized for storage. Right? And what does it do to be that way? It uses normalized data structures that deduplicate the data on disk. Uh, and then it supports ad hoc queries to generate materialized views that the application needs, right? So oftentimes the application doesn't really just need to select data from a table, right, in a relational database. It needs to select data from a table and join another. I may have a customer's table and an orders, orders table, and I want all the orders for a customer. So it's select from customers, interjoin orders, right? And in a NoSQL database, I would store orders and customers together in a single document or a single collection of items that would be selected off the same table. So it's faster. Uh, SQL databases scale vertically, right? They don't partition the data store, so you have to buy a bigger box, right? Uh, many, many customers I've worked with have, you know, fought this battle repeatedly and now are at the point where they say we just can't buy another one. I had a customer recently came to me and said they had uh, just invested a half a million dollars in a uh, MSSQL server infrastructure, and then six months later, after having the Microsoft guys come in and tune everything every way they possibly can, uh, the answer was you need a bigger box, right? <laughs> They said, that's enough. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna look at uh, moving to a platform that scales incrementally and allows a partitioning of the data store, and so we're talking to them about a variety of NoSQL technologies. Uh, so really, SQL technologies play very well in one particular application space. That's the OLAP space, right? Online analytics. If I don't know what the question is, if I don't know what the access pattern is that my application is going to require, and this is typically your BI analytics scenario, uh, an SQL database is really the best option because it supports that ad hoc query. It's not going to be the most efficient in producing those views, but you don't know what views you need. Now, OLTP apps, on the other hand, they always process data the exact same way. When the user clicks the button, the same thing happens, right? They're very repetitive in how they use data, which gives us the ability to store that data on disk in a very structured format that's specific to the application, right? So we use denormalized, hierarchical views of data. We'll talk a little bit about what that looks like. These are the instantiated views, the things that are coming out of your relational store when you run that ad hoc query. Those views typically get stored in, in, in that context within a NoSQL database. <laughs> they scale horizontally, so they partition across multiple nodes, allowing you to continually grow uh, the database and the processing power of your database. And really, because of this, they're built for, I say, built for OLTP at scale. So really, two technologies, two different types of applications. If you really want performance and scale in OLTP, NoSQL is the solution for you. 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit about DynamoDB. Uh, some, a lot of familiarity here, but there are a couple of people who weren't, so we'll talk some of the basics, not too much, and we'll get into the design pattern stuff. Again, this is a deep dive session. I got a lot of content, so we'll rub it, run it to the end of the uh, hour, and hopefully we'll have some time for questions. If not, I'll be out in the hallway. Uh, but DynamoDB is a fully managed NoSQL database, and that's probably the biggest value of it. Uh, you know, I worked at companies like MongoDB. Uh, I've worked with technologies like Cassandra, DynamoDB, uh, and other NoSQL databases. And really, the biggest thing that I can tell you uh, as a customer of DynamoDB, uh, they benefit from the fact that they don't need to manage the operational infrastructure of the database. It's not easy to run a scaled-out distributed NoSQL database. Many, many servers, many clusters and shards. Each MongoDB shard has three servers. So as I scale out, I'm incrementally increasing the number of servers, and I'm increasing the operational burden on my support staff. Now, at first, you may not notice this, but when you get to 50, 100, 150, 200 instances, you will start to notice the amount of money you're spending just managing those servers. Uh, so taking that away from the customer is probably the biggest value you can get out of a managed NoSQL service like DynamoDB. Uh, DynamoDB is also what we call a document or key value store. I really call it a key value store that supports a document attribute type. We'll talk a little bit about how it does that uh, later in the presentation. Uh, two design points of the technology. It was designed to be fast and consistent at any scale. And we have customers that are running millions of transactions per second against DynamoDB and, reach, and, and, and experiencing low single-digit millisecond latency very consistently across those requests. Uh, and, you know, again, it's the design, core design of the system uh, was, was taken into consideration. Those were one of the requirements uh, that were in, in consideration when they designed the system. Uh, Fine-grained access control. So you have, uh, those of you familiar with IAM, it's Identity Access Management. You can create users, assign uh, permissions to those users to access your DynamoDB tables on a very granular way, uh, on a table level, on an item level. Uh, you, can, you can restrict these types of uh, users to particular attributes or items on the table. And then it gets a backplane service. It's fully managed. It's always there. You don't need to provision it. All you need to do is turn it on. Uh, and as such, that makes it what we call a backplane service that's really suitable for these event-driven programming models or serverless computing, right? It's not something that you need to provision. Uh, it's something that we manage for you. All right, so real quick, tables in DynamoDB, like any other database, you create tables. Tables have items, and items have attributes. All right, so items can have any number of attributes. The only mandatory attribute in any item is the partition key. You have to provide that. That's like the unique primary key in a relational database table. Uh, that will uniquely identify the item. Optionally, you can provide an additional mandatory schema attribute, which would be a sort key. When I do this, now the combination of the partition and the sort key define the uniqueness of the item. This is really defining a bucket, right? So in the case of customers and orders, right, you might imagine the partition key could be the customer ID, the sort key could be the order ID. Now all of the orders for a particular customer are going to fall into the same bucket or partition. And the reason we do this is because we want to line those items up on disk so that when you, when you query for a particular customer, you can get all those orders with a single table select and a large sequential read. The sort key also gives us the ability to execute complex range queries against those attributes. So partition key queries are equality only. When I query a partition key, I must know what is the customer I'm looking for. When I query the sort key, I can add a range operator, greater than, less than, equals to. So imagine the same scenario, customers and orders, this time customer ID and sorted by timestamp. Now I can issue a range query and say, give me all the orders for this customer in the last 24 hours. And the, and the system is able to go right to disk, right to the location where all those items are, issue a very 
a selective sequential read and bring that data back. And this is why DynamoDB is very, very fast and efficient and scales linearly across any load. Because I am, I am literally, I'm telling the system exactly where to go every time I give it a query. So I don't have to worry about the scale of the table causing me additional latency in my query. One of the biggest advantages of a system like Dynamo. So how do we scale? Uh, partition keys are typically hashed uh, to create a randomized range or key space is what we call it. We'll take those hashed values, we will line those items up across that key space, and as you increase the capacity or the size of the table, we will chunk that key space and split it across multiple nodes. This is a fundamental principle in NoSQL. It's how every NoSQL database scales. Cassandra, MongoDB, DynamoDB, they are all the same. And, you know, there'll be some sort of a shard attribute that we will use to create an arbitrary key space. We will chunk that key space across multiple nodes. And the best way to increase the performance of the system is to get multiple nodes to participate in the query activity. So we talk about hotkeys. Hotkeys are nailing all of the workload to one of these storage partitions. And we'll talk about some design patterns to avoid that. So scaling. Scaling in DynamoDB. Two dimensions of scale. We scale on throughput and size. Throughput, you control. You tell us how much throughput you want on the table in write capacity and read capacity. There's some calculations we'll go through in a minute about how we use those numbers to split across a number of partitions. Size, you start inserting items on the table. Every 10 gigabytes of items, we're going to split to another partition. All right, so those are the two dimensions that we scale on. Uh, scaling is achieved, as we discussed, through partitioning across multiple storage nodes. Throughput is provisioned at the table level. So each, each table you provision in DynamoDB will have throughput provisioned independently. It's provisioned in write capacity and read capacity. These two knobs are completely independent of each other. All right, so you will have write capacity units that are in one kilobyte per second, read capacity at four kilobytes per second. Uh, reads are automatically consistent. In DynamoDB, we replicate across three nodes by default. When you read after you write, well, when you write, we will acknowledge to write when two have come back. And when you read, we'll read from an arbitrary two and give you the most current data. Okay, so that makes it a read after write consistent platform. You can turn that off. You can make that eventually consistent. And when you do that, it halves your read consumption. So this is a very cheap way to be able to double your read capacity is use eventually consistent reads. By default, they're turned off. So that's something you need to do in the driver. And most, work, most access patterns will support eventually consistent reads. So I would go ahead and recommend that you would use that unless you have an absolute need for consistency. <clears throat> Partitioning math kind of works like this. Today, these are the numbers. In the future, this could change. When you provision capacity for every 3,000 RCUs uh, you know, or 1,000 WCUs or fraction thereof, we will give you a partition. So you take the total RCU you want divided by 3,000. You take the total WCU you want divided by 1,000. You add those two together, and that's how many numbers, you, how many partitions you will need by capacity. Now, by size, it's very easy. Divide the table size by 10 gigabytes, you get another number. We're going to give you the larger one of the two right, because I need to be able to satisfy the larger requirement. Uh, so again, in the, in the future, these details could change, but let's see how that looks like today for a partitioning example of an eight gigabyte table, 5,000 RCUs, 500 uh, WCUs. So the way the math runs, 2.17 by capacity, 0 0.8 by size. Uh, that's going to give me a number of two numbers, 2.17 and 0 0.8. I'm going to round up and I'm going to give you the larger, so you're going to get three partitions. 
So a lot of people might say at this point, why do I care? Well, you care because when we give you those three partitions, we are going to evenly distribute the RCU and the WCU that you have provisioned across those three partitions. So if you have a workload that nails any kind of activity to any one of these partitions that consumes more than that, then we can have what we call a hotkey, you might get throttled. Right? So what does that look like? If sustained throughput goes beyond the provision throughput on a per-partition basis for an extended period of time, you may see throttling. Now, we have some burst capacity built in the system. You get about five minutes of unused capacity in a burst bucket that will be provided to you on a best effort basis if it's there. So, uh, but if it's not there, then you're going to get throttled. If you exhaust that burst bucket, meaning you have a hot key on a particular partition that goes for too long, you're going to exhaust that, then you will be throttled. So again, we're going to go through some design patterns to talk about how do you deal with these types of situations. <laughs> Non-uniform workloads. Again, high velocity access to a single item. That's going to be a bad idea. Uh, mixing your hot data and your cold data. We'll talk about you know, time series data where over time you don't care about this, but if you keep on inserting it to the table, the table's going to grow. And if we grow too big, you keep splitting and splitting, and you can see that throughput dilution gets worse and worse, and eventually you end up with hotkeys. So we want to make sure we're rolling that cold data off of the table. Uh, you know, again, from the example before, if we exceed the 1,666 RCUs or 166 WCUs, then we're probably going to see some throttling, and this would not be a good situation. So this is what that looks like. We have a lot of customers ask for these. These are heat maps. We run these when customers suspect they're having hotkeys. I can usually spot a hotkey without this. Look at your CloudWatch metrics. If you're being throttled and you're well below your provision capacity, you've probably got a hotkey somewhere, either on the table or on the index. Okay? Uh, but this is really the uh, NoSQL equivalent of cardiac arrest. Right? Uh, the system is dead. It's flatlined. There's, you're going to be throttled right and left. Your application is going to be falling over sideways. You don't want these types of situations. So how do we avoid that? Well. In DynamoDB, there's, again, we talked about uh, some of the dimensions of, of scale, but really what it comes down to, if I want to get the most out of the throughput out of DynamoDB, uh, I want to create tables where that partition key element is a high cardinality set, right? It has a large number of distinct values, so I'm spreading the data out across a number of partitions, and then when I execute my queries, I'm gathering data from a number of partitions uh, across multiple threads. DynamoDB scales linearly across threads. Single thread performance in DynamoDB is not the best, right? We have HTTP API. You're going to be making requests. You're going to be building connections and tearing them down. You, know, you can't really pipeline requests. So what you want to do is just spin up multiple threads. You cannot break the DynamoDB API. People have tried. There is no way to do it. Uh, just like Route 53, there's a, the API ain't going to go down. Uh, so then, then the next part of the equation is we want to request those values fairly uniformly, right? As, as, and, uh, <laughs> over time. So that gives us two dimensions. We have space, and this is about distribution of your data. We can always distribute your data, right? If you're having a hotkey problem, let's talk. We can make this, we can mitigate the issue. Uh, time's a little different. Time, you have no real control over when the users come, right? If the thundering herd arrives, you need to be able to step up and, and respond to that. Uh, and there are some design patterns we'll talk about how to deal with those situations as well. But if we, can, if we can satisfy both those requirements, then we end up with this type of picture. This is really what we want to see. Um, as a matter of fact, I'd really like to see a little more color in here. I'd really like to see more of a pepperoni pizza where we see little red spots all over the place. I mean, you've got a high utilization table. Uh, you're getting some random alignment of keys across the key space that are causing a little bit of key pressure here and there. A little bit of throttling is okay at high utilization. The driver catches some of that. Your application can catch and retry. But bottom line is we don't want to see those big red lines, right? Those are bad things in NoSQL. 
All right, let's get into data modeling. How do we look at data? OLTP apps, it's all about aggregations, right? We talked about customers and orders. We could talk about parts and assemblies. We can, you know, talk about any, any, any particular way a customer or an, an OLTP app uses the data. It's always trying to aggregate items in a certain dimension, right? So this is really the fundamental principle of DynamoDB is to maintain those aggregations somewhere on these tables or indexes, right? Doesn't matter what app you're building, social networks, document management, IT monitoring, you name it, uh, we're trying to aggregate data. So we do this in, in SQL. This is a fairly straightforward SQL structure here. We've got products table here uh, that's tied to a bunch of others through common relationships, one-to-one, one-to-many, many-to-many relationships. And you can imagine what kind of queries I have to run against this database if I want to get a list of all my products, right? I run three different queries. One of them is relatively simple. Two of them are pretty complex. And think about how much time that CPU is spending hopping around disk to build this materialized view. Well, in NoSQL, I want to take a different approach. I don't want normalized data. I want aggregations. I want denormalized data, right? I want these hierarchies to be stored as items. When I retrieve these items, I could, you know, if this was my product table, for example, now I select, say, select star from products. I get everything. I don't have to go and join data from multiple tables and drive that CPU nuts to build this materialized view because it's already there, all right? And, you know, the interesting byproduct of this is if I, you know, really need what people talk about, the need for ACID transactions, it's really about updating these application layer objects where the data lives on multiple tables, right? Uh, you know, if I don't have an application layer object that requires to be built from data that's in multiple places, then maybe I don't need that, that ACID-style transaction to do those updates. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. Hierarchical data. Right, this kind of structures we just saw. How do I represent this? So there's multiple ways to represent this in DynamoDB. Uh, the first way would be to create a series of items and then store these in, in, in partitions. So in this example, we have a products table where I've done exactly that. We have our book record, and that book record is just a single item because that was that one-to-one -one table, right? I had products and books. Well, one-to-one, -one, I can maintain all that relationship in a single item on the table, right? Just collapse those attributes. Uh, the one-to-many of the albums I can maintain as a, a hierarchy under the product ID, ID2 category by just concatenating the album ID and track IDs together, right? I can use a leading indicator that tells me that this is an album or a track. My application layer can switch on the type of the item that it's iterating through to build these application layer objects. So you can see if I want a particular album, I just say select product ID2. I'm going to get all the tracks, I'm going to get all the, the metadata that describes the album, and I can build that application layer object with a single query, right? This is the idea of NoSQL. You want very simple, straightforward queries, selects off the table that get you the data. You don't want to have to go to multiple places to get the data your application needs. Uh, the, other the other alternative here is that I can store these uh, hierarchies as JSON attributes. So I've done that in this particular case. You can see I have fewer items. Now, why might I do one versus the other? Well. In this case, I might go with the second route because all those items are relatively small, right? And I'm going to have to pay one WCU to insert every single item, whereas maybe if I build the hierarchy this way, I'm only paying three WCU to insert these three items. The other way, I might be paying 15 WCU to insert all those items, right? So on the read, not so bad because I'm aggregating all the items and the read capacity is aggregated, but on the write, I have to pay for each item I'm inserting. So again, depending on your access pattern, one way or the other, might make sense, right? If I have a very, very large hierarchy, I, I want to go to multiple items because I have a 400 kilobyte limit on the item size in, in DynamoDB, okay? And the, the conversely, I can also support a hierarchies of any size, right, this way. Okay, let's get into design patterns and some best practices here. The first thing we're going to talk about are a couple of constructs that are important in some of the design patterns I'm going to talk about. 
so the first thing we'll talk about is uh, DynamoDB streams and Lambda. All right, so I hear a lot from customers about how uh, they, they wish that DynamoDB had a stored procedure engine. Okay, and I tell them, well, you know, we have Lambda, right? Lambda is actually the best stored procedure engine you can find out there. In most databases, you run those stored procedures, where are they executing, right? On the database head node. If I have a complex stored procedure or a JavaScript, in the case of MongoDB, you find out real quick when you're running MongoDB that at scale, you don't want to do aggregations. And you don't want to run JavaScript on the server. As a matter of fact, the professional services team at MongoDB will tell you don't do that. Uh, and the reason why is because when you're running these types of JavaScript uh, stored procedures, so to speak, against large data sets, you can crush the processing power of the server. You can crush the memory space on the server. This is really, really bad for any database, but especially bad for a NoSQL database like MongoDB that relies on data being in memory. So when you look at Lambda, it gives us the ability to scale that stored procedure execution framework independently of the database head node. So I can do whatever I want. The only thing I'm going to consume off the table is read and write capacity. I'm not going to consume the processing horsepower. I'm not going to drive latency into the system by running a complex aggregation or a, a, a real-time materialized view in, you know, in a Lambda function. Right? Uh, streams is really a change log for DynamoDB. Streams allows you to basically have every update, every insert on the table, every delete, or every operation that changes data on the table you know, appear on a, uh, a durable queue that comes off the back of the table. That queue can be used to trigger stored procedures through Lambda, right? So these two constructs together are a very powerful execution framework that you can leverage around your DynamoDB table. And some of the design patterns we're going to talk about do this, and these are some of the things you can do. So triggers off the table into that Lambda function. A lot of customers will take that data and rotate it into a derivative view, create a derivative table or a real-time running aggregation. This is a great way to do that. Use Lambda, uh, update cloud search, update elastic cache, or even execute uh, you know, external workflows against third-party systems or notifications. So a great, a great way to be able to execute those types of workflows on your data is to use that Lambda and streams. Okay, first design pattern we're going to talk about, uh, real-time voting. So uh, in elections, uh, typically there's a long list or maybe a short list of candidates, but really there's only one or two options to get a lot of votes. All right. So if I have a table out there and I'm trying to aggregate votes and I'm aggregating votes by candidate ID and everybody in the country is voting for one or the other, then what is happening is I have two keys that are really, really busy. That's the definition of a hot key. This is a problematic scenario in NoSQL. Right? So if I'm running these types of high-velocity aggregations on the table, uh, the way to deal with that is to take those candidate IDs and add some arbitrary random value within a known range to the end of those. What I'm really doing here is I'm taking those two candidate buckets and I'm turning them into 20 or 200 or 2,000, right? And I'm spraying the votes across these partitions. On the back side, since I know that I've sprayed those, those records across this known range, I execute what we call a scatter gather. I just query all the partitions and then I merge sort those results at, at, you know, as I'm executing this query. So I, you, this is something that you code into the application tier. It's totally invisible to the, to the uh, developers once it's been implemented in the DAO uh, and it really allows you to scale that NoSQL. The idea again is to get more partitions participating in the query load. And that's exactly how we do this. When we have these dense aggregations, and this is not unique to DynamoDB, you'll see this in Mongo, you'll see this in Cassandra as well. A big part of NoSQL is making sure that when I execute my queries, that that data is coming off of multiple nodes in the cluster. 
right? That I'm not nailing a lot of work or all the work in some cases to a single storage partition. So the answer here is basically shard those right heavy partition keys. When we have those dense aggregations, you're trading off the read cost, so to speak, for that right scalability. Uh, but it gives you a lot more throughput against the table and a lot more flexibility when I'm dealing with those dense aggregations, right? Uh, and we'll show that in other use cases as well, ways to be able to use this design pattern. Use this when that right workload is not necessarily as scalable as you'd like it to be horizontally. You can add additional uh, uh, you know, nodes into the query workflow by doing this. <clears throat> okay, next case we'll talk about is event logging, and it's about time series data. Now, time series data, there's two types of time series. The first we'll talk about is static time series data. This would be an event monitoring system, uh, you know, or, or whatever ITSM uh, type of application where I have, you know, event streams coming in off of a number of devices, uh, events or metrics or whatever they are, some sort of time series data. When you're dealing with time series data, it's usually about some sort of operational analytics, and operational analytics operate over a period of time that is relevant to the, to the application. So that could be 24 hours, it could be seven days, it could be 30 days, whatever. After that period of time, usually that data is not so interesting anymore. Right, so less queries will be operating against it. So the idea here is that you create this table that's called your hot table. Hot table has high write capacity, high read capacity. It's taking a lot, it's taking all the ingestion, and it's taking a lot of your operational analytics queries. Uh, about halfway through your interesting period, you're going to roll that hot table back to a cold table or to a warm table. Now, warm table is going to have zero write capacity because it doesn't need to take any new data. And it's going to handle about half of your operational analytics queries because it's the back end of the time period that's interesting to your app. Right? So you want to keep those two tables, that hot table and that warm table, provisioned, and eventually, after some period of time, you deprovision the warm table to a cold table, or you drop it, or you do whatever you want with it. Right? I like this design pattern because it allows you to deal with data in bulk and have some sort of data lifecycle around how am I going to manage this data. Right? Most of these types of applications, they want to archive that data at some point for some period of time. And, and it's a nice way to be able to bucket that data up by time period and be able to, at the end of this whole thing, you can run a data pipeline or an EMR job, just pipe it off to S3, store it off in Glacier, you're done, right? So uh, this is a great strategy for dealing with that static time series data. And that's what the data where the timestamp never changes, right? The, the, the entries made into the table and that TTL, so to speak, timestamp attribute would never be updated. So uh, pre-create those tables on a weekly, monthly, whatever basis you need. It's important to create a future table. When I create a new hot table, what I'm really doing is I'm enabling the future table or I'm provisioning the future table. The reason why is because when I go to provision a table in DynamoDB, it might take a little while. So if my application's running, I don't want to have to wait some arbitrary time frame that's indeterminate in order to be able to roll that table. I want to have a future table all hot up and ready and maybe take the capacity and dial it all down. That way, when you're ready to roll up, you spin the capacity up on the future table, you make it your hot table, switch the application over to write to that table, create a new future table, deprovision the, 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 the pre-existing hot table, and just keep going, right? And it just becomes a process of rolling that table over on a regular interval to keep the thing from getting bigger and bigger and bigger and splitting and creating that throughput dilution problem that we talked about. So the other type of data we look at with time series is uh, what I call dynamic TTL, right? Maybe I have a table full of data, it might be some session data, or it could be user data, and every time the user touches the data, I'm gonna update the timestamp on that, because you know, that's basically after 30 days of the last touch is when I want to delete it. So if I have this type of workflow, the data on the table gets 
pretty much spread out all over the place, right? Some data is hot, some data is cold. I don't know which data needs to go. So I have to build what we call TTL index, right? So the way to do that in DynamoDB is pretty straightforward. What I do is I create this attribute on there on every item. When I insert the event or the, the object onto the table, every item gets an attribute that's a GSI key, and that GSI key is a random range between zero to N, right? So depending on how many items you have on the table, how big your table is, that might be a pretty big number. It could be a 1,000 or so. What you're doing is you're right sharding the GSI, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a GSI on that GSI key attribute, and I'm going to arrange it on the timestamp of all your items. So by doing this now, what I've done is I've taken the entire table and I've rotated it into a single index on one attribute, and I now can execute a range query via scatter gather against that TTL index and get a very selective query set, you know, result set back that's not going to burn a lot of capacity. I don't have to troll the whole table. I don't have to run a table scan and look at every item. I can very quickly retrieve the items that have expired. I do this with the AWS Lambda running as a scheduled process. So we talked a little bit about how you can use Lambda as a stored procedure. This is a perfect way to do that. So this process just runs on a regular basis, scatter gather queries the GSI, gets your expired items and takes them off the table. It's a really neat way to do that. And then on top of that, I can hook up streams if I want, and I can run a secondary Lambda script to actually archive that data into a second table or rotate it out into a data lake or whatever it is I want to do, right? So an excellent way to be able to take multiple AWS services and build this kind of complex workflow to manage your data from one table to the other. And this takes that right sharding design pattern, it leverages Lambda as a stored procedure, and it gives you a very efficient mechanism to be able to, to, to build that kind of TTL infrastructure around your own tables for this kind of dynamic TTL timestamp. So use that right sharded GSI to selectively query those expired items, uh, create that stored procedure in Lambda uh, to delete those items and migrate that data uh, using triggers off of the stream. Uh, it's a pretty effective solution that I've worked with a few customers to put in place. <clears throat> All right, next one we'll talk about is the product catalog. Uh, product catalog is an interesting scenario. We've seen this uh, just recently with Black Friday and Cyber Monday on the retail space. Uh, obviously, when you have uh, those types of you know, high-volume sales activities, uh, you've got people looking at a select number of items in your product catalog, right? They're, 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 these are the deals, right? So thousands and thousands of users, tens of thousands of users coming in making these requests. Uh, it gives us that kind of hot key scenario. We don't like that. That's what this looks like, right? We've got a very imbalanced access pattern across the key space. Uh, what we want to do in this kind of situation is implement a cache, right? Uh, cache is a pretty straightforward solution. You're going to put those high-velocity items in that cache. Uh, you'll read from cache first. If it's not there, you go ahead and read out DynamoDB, push it into the cache. Uh, you can leverage Lambda and streams again. If you put a write onto the table, you can leverage a Lambda streams uh, uh, interaction to be able to take that data and update your cache, right? Uh, so you don't necessarily need to uh, uh, manage the the cache consistency at the application tier. You can do this uh, using that kind of stored procedure framework again. If we do that, that's what this looks like. Much, much better, right? We have uh, cache hits up front. Cache hits are free. Uh, you can use your own cache. You can use Elastic Cache. We have uh, services that are available for you with Redis or MemCached uh, instances that are, self, that are managed by AWS. You can use a self-managed instance, whatever you'd like to do. Uh, but this is the kind of result set here that you get from looking from implementing this solution in that design pattern, in that design scenario, uh, and you get more cache hits, less table hits. It's going to be cheaper overall, much more performant. 
Okay, let's talk a little bit about multi-version concurrency in NoSQL or transactional NoSQL, right? We hear a lot about how uh, I need ACID. As a matter of fact, there's some of you may be familiar with the transaction library that's available for DynamoDB. So these things are going to be out there for you. Uh, as you know, users want these things, so we're going to build them. I wouldn't even say that the service team is building these things, but the SA community puts these things out in response to user requests. And we're actually seeing a lot of activity in the NoSQL market in general to provide, you know, uh, transactional frameworks and relational types of, uh, uh, of you know, uh, control structures in NoSQL. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about how you might be able to do some of these things. Do you really need ACID or what do you really need is multi-version concurrency, right? Uh, ACID is not something that's really uh, used a lot in distributed systems. Right? When I have a bank transaction, people talk about ACID, but the reality is Wells Fargo and B of A don't operate on the same database, so I'm not going to be able to put a you know, distributed ACID transaction across those two systems. So what do they do? They do a multi-phase commit, right? And really, that's what we're going to talk about with NoSQL. So how do the OLTP apps use the data? Mostly hierarchical structures, right, as we talked about, a product catalog, right, a book, an album, right, a, a movie, uh, an assembly, uh, orders by customer, what, you know, items by order, uh, you know, uh, visits by client, whatever. There's always some sort of hierarchical structure I'm trying to build in an OLTP application. And they use entity-driven workflows, right? We create these top-level entities in the application layer, a customer, a product, you know, whatever it may be, right? Uh, these entities are built using properties that live on multiple tables in a relational database, right? The orders of a customer don't live on the same table as the customer. They certainly don't live in the same item as the customer record. So this is the driver for ACID, right? When I build an application layer object and I need to update it, then I need to make sure that that object is updated in its entirety or not at all. And this is where ACID applies in relational. So in NoSQL, we're doing something a little different. Right? We'll talk about how we might be able to manage that type of transactional workflow in NoSQL. And the example we'll use is a warehousing scenario. So in this particular case, I've got a picker, automated warehouse, got DynamoDB tables, a relatively simple schema, a bunch of parts that make up an assembly. Uh, an order comes in for a particular assembly. The picker pulls the list of parts. It goes running around the warehouse, and it pulls out the parts. Right? Very straightforward. Now let's say that along comes the purchasing department. They find a new vendor. They start loading new items into the table equivalent parts for this particular assembly. Uh, this could be problematic. If my picker is running and this table needs to be available 724 and the picker is just going to start, all of a sudden it's going to get a bunch of orders that have some old parts and some new parts and it, and it doesn't know which ones are which. All of a sudden it's got six parts instead of three. Which ones do I use? Right? Let's say maybe in the sixth part hasn't even been added yet, so I've only got five. Okay, so now which one do I go? Right? Uh, and the way to go about this is to create what I'd call partition locks. And you do this with a metadata item. You insert some metadata item or you tag attributes onto the end of an existing item that you use to control a transactional workflow. Uh, and in, in essence, what happens is the first process that needs to update this table comes in, it takes a lock on that metadata item by using conditional update. Right? Set that lock value equals zero if the lock value equals one. All right? Now, if that update succeeds, I know I have the lock. I can go ahead and add my new items. I can create a version set attribute on that metadata item, right? So that's what that little item list is, right? Uh, that's a JSON array. Just, and it's an array of, of arrays. And those first, the first array is one, two, three. That's version one. You know, the application is interpreting this array, and it knows. Version one's going to be the first. Version two's going to be the next. You know, four, five, six, that's version two. If the picker comes along and it selects from the table and I haven't yet inserted all the items, it's going to get what I call a fat read. It can determine how to deal with that fat read. 
If it knows, hey, I've got a new version, I don't have all the items, it's an incomplete update, it can decide I want to go back and read again and, and get the full version. Or it can say, I have, a, I have a valid version, it's one, two, three, I'll use those three items, right? Either way, the picker can decide, the application can decide very easily whether I want to use the old set or the new set. What have I done? I've created a versioning type of system here by using this metadata object. I can add additional attributes onto the metadata object, things like timeout. Right? They have a 15-minute timeout on this particular transaction or a five-minute timeout, whatever. Other processes coming in trying to establish a lock on this partition could check the timeout value. If it's expired, they can execute some sort of a rollback workflow. In relational technology, when you roll back a transaction, that's not the end of it, right? We're always going to have to do some sort of work in the application layer. Some failure mode workflow is going to have to fire when that transaction doesn't go through in the database, right? So this is something that allows you to basically control that in your own application and, and, and using the same logic that you're going to have to code into your relational app anyways. Right? So using these metadata items or these metadata attributes on existing items is a great way to be able to lock those partitions and create these kinds of transactional workflows uh, and use its kind of multi-version concurrency control for NoSQL without having to have a transaction framework like a JTA or some sort of a uh, relational database uh, ACID construct. So manage versioning across those items with the metadata. Uh, use those metadata items to lock the partition. Uh, you can tag the attributes. When you're done with the transaction, you don't have to keep all those items on the partition. You can clean them off and keep only the current ones, or you can actually add that versioning information to the sort key. So I can have a selective query for a particular version of a particular assembly by using a, a begins with type of query construct and say, get me version one for assembly two, get me version two for assembly two, and I'll get only the items associated with that version. Or you could read the whole partition, right? All depends on what your application workflow is. Uh, but it's very useful when you need those types of transactional rights across items. You can also use this construct to control transactions that run across Disparate systems, right? I have workflows dependencies on third-party systems or other systems outside of DynamoDB. You can use these metadata items to kind of control how processes interact or lock that transaction space. All right, messaging app. Uh, this is really about large items and what they can do to your table. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about filtering and indexing and whatnot in here as well. Uh, but the idea here is that you've got a messaging app. Let's think email. Uh, this could be a, you know, maybe a video game or something where I have a messaging application infrastructure. But I've got some messages table. And I want views off that table. I want inbox view and I want outbox view. So pretty straightforward. Select you know, star from messages table where the recipient's David. There's my inbox. You know, where the sender's David, there's my outbox. Sounds pretty good. The first way I go about this might be to actually build one of those relationships into the primary table, right? Where I have a, a messages table that's hashed on recipient or, or, or partitioned on recipient and sorted on date. There's my inbox. Now I can create a GSI that's you know, sorted on or you know, uh, partitioned on sender and sorted on date. So have table GSI. That sounds great. Uh, you know, what's the problem here? Well, <laughs> let's do some math. If the average message size is 256 kilobytes, uh, and, you know, I go and I select 50 items, and let's say we apply our eventually consistent read, which is half the cost, uh, I'm still going to be eating up 1,600 RCUs every time a user goes to check their inbox. And why is that? Because I'm reading these items that are big. But, you know, when you think about the view of the inbox, what do I really, what am I interested in? I'm not interested in the, the, the message body. Right? When I look at my summary view, I'm only interested in the, the metadata that describes the message, the subject, the sender, the date. Right? 
So maybe a better idea would be to take a, a page from the relational book and to vertically partition this table, right? This is an old strategy we've always used to try and reduce the, 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 the IOP burden on the storage array is to, you know, query what you need. Don't query for what you don't need, right? When I, when I go to the detail view on an email, that's when I need the message body, okay? So let's create a GSI off of that messages table, and that GSI is not going to contain the body attribute. It's going to contain only the attributes I need for my summary view, whether that's an inbox or an outbox, uh, two GSIs, right? Now when I query the GSI, I use a lot less RCU to get the information that I need to page draw my emails, and when I select the one email that I'm interested in reading, then I'll go back and get that data off the table. Right? So instead of paying that RCU cost every time I check the inbox, let's vertically partition the table, get the big items off away from the small items and maintain pointers. You know, the GSI really does maintain that pointer back to that message table so you can go get the body if you need it. Now I've got a messages table. I've got two secondary indexes, one for my global secondary, one, uh, one for my inbox, one for my outbox. I've got a very straightforward system here. And what I've done is I've distributed those large items across uh, two constructs, a GSI for my small metadata that describes my view and the table that I go back to look up for that big data. Uh, so useful design pattern when you're querying many large items, but you don't really need all the the large attributes associated with those items, I just need to know, you know, the descriptors around that item. All right, let's talk a little bit about multiplayer online gaming. In this particular situation, let's say I've got a table here, and I've got, uh, you know, user invites to games, right? So we've got a bunch of games that are done, bunch are, bunch are in progress, bunch are pending, whatnot. Uh, what I want here is to be able to get all the pending invites for a particular user within a particular time frame. Right, so let's talk about uh, how we might do that. So we select star from game uh, where the opponent's Bob. Uh, we're going to order by date, and we want to filter on the status. Right. So this is a great way to be able to take the knock the records out that I don't need by filtering on extended attribute. We talked a little bit about how you can execute complex uh, range queries against sort key attributes. Uh, this is now we what we've done here is we've added in an extended attribute. It's not the sort key. The difference here is that the sort key gives us a very selective query set, right? I, I can range on that sort key. I can get a definitive list of items, right? Uh, the filter condition only knocks items out after they've been read, okay? So you're paying the RCU of reading three records. You're paying the bandwidth of sending two. You know, why is this important? Well, because maybe I want actually a more selective query. If I've got thousands of items in this partitioning and I'm filtering for only two, it might be better to use a different key structure that gives me a more selective query because I'm going to pay a lot of RCU to use the filter expression on every query. So you're kind of getting the idea here, depending on your access pattern, depends on how you want to structure the data. And it's kind of the same with all NoSQL databases. This is kind of the needle in the haystack approach. I'm going to take the haystack, I'm going to filter through it and shake until the needles come out. Uh, a better approach might be to take that uh, index and create what we call a composite key. All right, in this particular case, I'm going to take the status, I'm going to concatenate it to the date, and I'm going to create a new key called status date. All right, what have I done here? I've created what we, you know, in, in MongoDB, this would be a compound index, right? I've created an index on two attributes. I can query this index from left to right. I've got items now sorted not only by status, but by date. So a nested sort kind of going on in here. Now I can execute a much, much more selective query. Oop, get back there. Uh, and I can basically create just a key condition that says where status date begins with pending. And I know that I'm going to get everything ordered by time 
you know, that has a status of pending, right? So this is a, a much better query, a much more selective query. Uh, now, when would I use one over the other? Well, if I have a situation where my every item in the, in the partition is less than 4K total, then I might as well go ahead and use a filter condition because I'm going to pay one RCU whether I read the whole partition or whether I read just a subset of the items. It's still one RCU. So if, it's, if the, if the, if the trade-off is to build an, a GSI to get that selective query and use the composite key or query the table partition, I'd say just query the table partition because the GSI is going to cost you. Every time you update an item on the table, you're going to have to pay WCU on the GSI as well. So, again, it's the, it's the idea here is to understand what is it you're looking for in the application, what is the structure of your data on disk, what is the right answer for you, it might not be the right answer for me, right? So we've got to sit there and, and, and it's really tuned, you know, NoSQL in general, very tuned to that access pattern. So if we take this approach now, we've got that needle in a sorted haystack, right? I've, I've gone out and I've taken this more like taking the magnet, covering over the hay and pulling those needles right out of it, right? That's kind of the approach we want to take. So the other thing you can do with DynamoDB, which is kind of cool, is you can leverage sparse indexes. All right? Sparse indexes give us the ability to index items that don't necessarily have or that have attributes that other items don't have. Why would I do this? In this particular case, we'll say, let's say I want an award GSI. Who won in my uh, user domain? Right? And the users that have won awards might have an award attribute, and they would uh, be then appear in the index. Users that don't have an award attribute, they well, they don't appear in the index. So now I can query that index, I can scan that index and get a very, very short list of users that actually have won awards. Right? I can also allocate a hell of a lot less WCU to that GSI because it is not consuming uh, nearly as much because most of the items on the table are never, are never getting there because right, that's what we call a sparse index. Uh, so that's a great way to be able to you know, support highly selective queries. So replace those filters with indexes, concatenate those keys to create those nested sorts, uh, more selective queries. Uh, again, it all depends on your access pattern, what you're trying to do with the application. But it's really important to think about these things when you're trying to optimize that query cost as much as you possibly can. Okay. So we'll talk a little bit about reference architecture here. DynamoDB is a backplane service, like many backplane services in AWS. We have uh, the ability to execute a variety of workflows through a variety of, of constructs for you. As we talked about today, you have uh, AWS Lambda and Streams. These are very effective tools to use as stored procedures and triggers uh, off of the table. Uh, but there's a whole ecosystem of services. Uh, as a matter of fact, DynamoDB, according to this chart, you can see is the center of the universe. It's right in front of in the middle of all of them. But the, you know, the, the idea here is to give you a set of tools that you can use to build the applications without having to deploy dedicated infrastructure. And this is a very good example of that. This is an example of an app that we built uh, for the solutions architecture team. It's what we call our anytime feedback uh, application. We have the ability to, you know, typically with an SA uh, at AWS when you engage and you get an email from that SA, uh, at least in the EMEA region, you will see a link that says, how did I do? When you click on that link, what happens is the little form gets served up from an S3 bucket. Uh, and that form, when you hit post on that form, it hits API Gateway. API Gateway then calls up a Lambda function, logs a little bit of data as far as the access, and that Lambda function triages the form, the form results. Some of that form data is PII, personally identifiable information. Uh, we don't want to store that unencrypted, right? Not, for this particular application, we didn't really want to do client-side encryption, so we actually upload that PII to an uh, encrypted S3 bucket as a JSON document sits up there, and we push the searchable net metadata into DynamoDB, right? This application was built for less than the cost of my lunch, literally. Okay, it's hosted for pennies a month. 
And it could scale to support a million users tomorrow if they came. So this is the power of serverless. When people start to look at serverless, they say, oh, you know, it might be more expensive. You know, the reality is, no, this is, it's, it's, it's pennies until the users come. So even if it's more expensive while the users are there, and I would argue that it's probably not in most cases, uh, even if it is more expensive while the users are there, as soon as they're gone, you can tone down the entire infrastructure that supported that application, and, and, and it's, you know, it's better than cloud, right? It's the next generation of cloud. So we, we talk about EC2. A lot, of, a lot of our competitors talk about uh, how they're going to beat us with EC2. And I look at them and say, you guys are fighting yesteryear's battle, right? This is, we're, we're off, we're off in, in the future uh, with serverless, and you know, there's amazing things you can do with this technology. So, uh, you know, again, this application is a perfect example of that. Scales to any size, hosts for pennies a month, was built in a matter of days, uh, and, and was really, has been a phenomenal success. So, um, with that, that's what I've got. Uh, thank you all for coming and taking the time to come hear me. Uh, and hopefully you got something out of today's presentation again. Uh, remember to complete your evaluations. And if you liked what you saw, this is DAT 304 DynamoDB. If you didn't, uh, well, I don't know what the session was. So. <laughs> all right, thanks, guys. <laughs>